Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a real quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. And then I also can be found on all the major third-party podcast directories, Apple, Stitcher, Tune in, Spotify, all of those places. And then I also have a blog, and you can check that out at cagerredux.com. That's C A G E R R E D U X.com. All right, today is Monday, December 27th, and I hope everybody had a safe and enjoyable holiday. And we are right back in it, and I think it's only appropriate that I do a top 10 episode or actually episodes, I haven't decided exactly how I'm going to divvy it up yet. But this is an important year. And when I started this podcast in March of 2021, I built it around the theme of the perfect storm and a series of events coming together to create what may be viewed historically as one of the most important eras in the history of college sports. And boy, has it been a wild ride. I have worked really hard to try to keep up with everything that was happening. And the information was coming at such a pace that it was very, very difficult to keep up. But I think I've done a pretty good job of that. And when you're looking at these really big, powerful moving parts, like what's happening in federal antitrust litigation, what's happening in Congress, what's happening through the lobbying efforts of these powerful institutions, what's happening through the lens of public relations, and then trying to tease all of that out with the misdirection that comes through the sports entertainment industry. It's a daunting challenge. But my goal was to synthesize all of those moving parts and then be able to pretty quickly put what's happening on a day-to-day day basis into its appropriate context and help my listeners understand what's really going on here. It's important to remember that it's going to take years for what has happened in 2021 to to play out and for us to fully understand the implications of some things that on their face seemed transformative. And that was true with the prior perfect storm eras, the 1945 to 1956 era where the NCAA acquired meaningful enforcement authorities and jurisdiction and the you had the invention of the student athlete and then you had the introduction of the full athletic scholarship it took a long time for the consequences of those things that occurred in that era to be fully understood and to play out the same was true with board of regents and the board of regents era and after board of regents was decided in 1984 i don't think anybody fully understood the impact it was going to have it's taken decades really decades for Board of Regents to play out as the football market has reorganized itself. Now we have the the Power Five and the CFP, and we have now the takeover by the Power Five of the entire college sports regulatory market through this constitutional makeover. So the logical endpoint of Board of Regents really wasn't fully realized for 30 years. So some of these things that seem transformative, we don't know. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know the consequence of Austin, really. We don't know the consequence of a name, image, and likeness market or the transfer market or what the future of amateurism is going to be. So it's hard to say. But one of the things that I think is important to understand about this particular perfect storm is that it was the product of the NCAA 
purposefully coming in and trying to control the marketplace. In the past, these other perfect storm eras have been driven really by circumstance, some blind luck, with some cynical maneuvering by Walter Byers, and then through litigation whose outcome is always uncertain, and that was true with Board of Regents. But in this case, we had an entirely new set of circumstances driving this perfect storm, and they started with athletes filing lawsuits challenging amateurism-based compensation limits. These weren't just business-to-business disputes like Board of Regents between the powerful football interests and the NCAA or wranglings among institutions, as was the case with the Sanity Code and in through the discussion about the introduction of the full athletic scholarship in 1956. This was a different kind of threat, and it was an external threat that could force the NCAA to change. And then you add on top of that, the state legislatures coming in with name, image, and likeness. Again, these were going directly to the heart of the NCAA's business model and its amateurism-based compensation limits, and these state legislatures were coming in and imposing their will on the NCAA in a way that the NCAA could not ignore. And then you had the potential threat of athletes unionizing to try to impose on the NCAA some semblance of fairness and justice and reasonableness in their regulatory relationship with these athletes. This was a fundamentally different environment. And for the first time since 1906, the NCAA did something it had never done before. It went on offense and it put together one of the most audacious regulatory power grabs in the history of American sports. And it went to the United States Congress to try to completely eliminate federal courts from the regulatory landscape, to completely eliminate states and state legislatures from the regulatory landscape, and to try to prevent athletes from ever having the opportunity to unionize or to have any of the benefits of an employer-employee relationship. And the NCAA National Office, notably its executive leadership class, including President Mark Emmert and then high-ranking in-house attorney Donald Remy, they approached their task of trying to eliminate these external regulatory threats with the same arrogance that has come to be the hallmark of NCAA national office leadership really for the last 20 years. And 2021 saw the NCAA suffer defeat in all of its efforts to try to obtain the iron throne of college sports regulation by force. And on the backside of the failure of those attempts in Congress, in federal courts, in the state legislatures, in the courts of public opinion, the NCAA has been reduced to a shell of an organization that is fighting for its credibility and its very relevance. It was indeed a remarkable year. And now let's take a look back at the the top 10. And obviously this top 10 is going to be different from most that you will hear about or read about. We're going to stay grounded in reality with our eye to 2022 and talk about the most consequential events in what may become one of the most consequential years in the history of college sports. And before I uh, get to my top 10 list, and I'm going to go in reverse order from 10 down to 1, 
I want to talk about a few things that uh, didn't make the list that some people might be surprised at, but I'm going to explain why that's the case, because some of these stories from 2021 that got a lot of media really were more form than substance. And I really tried to focus on the things that had uh, real consequence in, in what happened in 2021. 21. For example, just a few things like the SEC's poaching of Texas and Oklahoma from the Big 12. That's a big story and that's important and it remains to be seen how that's going to play out. But as I discussed, I did a couple of episodes on that back when the story broke and I pointed out that I think that move, that conference realignment issue really operated independent of some of these other big stories that were floating around. And there has always been inertia, I think, to another realignment of the truly marquee football schools into what some people would uh, envision as kind of an NFL-like league. But it, it remains to be seen what the impact of that move will be going forward. And I think that's going to be potentially a big story in 2022, but it was just a teaser in 2021. And then you had this big brouhaha over the March Madness tournaments and the disparity in facilities and resources between the men's tournament and the women's tournament. That was important, but the reason I didn't put it in my top 10 is that there's nothing new there. The, The most important part of that story is that these Gender equity disparities, which can be traced back really to the 1970s and the NCAA's hostility towards Title IX, those have existed. It's been a boys' club, and you have to have had your head buried in the sand for the last 50 years to not see that. What's important about that story is that Sedona Prince, the Oregon basketball player, who posted photos of the facilities in San Antonio on an Instagram account. She did more in 10 seconds than all of these in-system NCAA stakeholders and all these high-level senior women's administrators and women's conference commissioners and all these committees and studies and all that. Sedona Prince got more done in a 10-second Instagram message than all those committees did combined over the last 50 years. That speaks not only to the power of social media messaging, but it also speaks to how flaccid the NCAA's in-system structure for dealing with these issues has been for decades. And one of the things that came out and the Kaplan report was that we know we just don't we don't want this to be just another study that sits on the shelf in the NCAA national office and then fades into obscurity. That's exactly what this report's going to be because it was commissioned by the National Collegiate Athletic Association. And again, we're back to having the same people trying to solve the problems that they created and have ignored. So hats off to Sedona Prince for accomplishing more in a couple of Instagram posts than the entire. NCAA system has been able to produce in 50 years. And let's see, then I also had on my honorable mention list the ACC Pac-12 Big Ten Alliance. You know, that got all of this media attention. And that was really a counterweight, I think, to what the SEC did when it 
picked apart the Big 12 and got Texas and Oklahoma. And you had all, all these people who felt slighted by that, huddling together in the corner, trying to join forces, thinking that if they held hands and everything was going to be great and they'd appear stronger. It was actually a symbolic act of weakness in my judgment because that alliance has no purpose. It has absolutely no purpose, and they've been struggling to come together to find something that they can agree upon that passes the blush test, and I don't think that's happened yet. So we had this knee-jerk reaction, and when I saw that, I just thought, please, guys, don't do this. Please, particularly the ACC. I'm an ACC guy. I'm an original ACC guy. I love the seven-member conference and Tobacco Road and all that. I'm like, don't, don't do this. Please, don't do this. But they did, and now they're huddling together in that corner, keeping each other warm, and good for them. Good for them. I hope it makes them feel better. And then another thing that came really close to making the top 10 was Roger Wicker's boycott of the June 17th hearing in the Senate Commerce Committee at which athletes, for the first time since February 2020 in the beginning of the Senate campaign by the NCAA and the Power Five, for the first time, we're going to have some actual athletes talk about their experience, and it wasn't going to be through the, the lens of NCAA interest. And Roger Wicker, a Republican from Mississippi who's been carrying the NCAA's bags, he led what amounted to a Republican boycott of that hearing. And Wicker's beef was that he and his Republican comrades didn't have complete control over the witness list as they had through all of the prior, at that point, five hearings that had occurred in the Senate. Wicker just took his ball and went home and a compliant media covered for him. That should have been a front page national story, not just because of the boycott, but because of the fact that all these Republican senators were white and all of the witnesses, the student witnesses, were African-American. So it wasn't just a boycott of athlete interest. It was a boycott of black athlete interest. And it was a horrible look for Roger Wicker and then another thing that happened really quite recently that may seem like a small thing to a lot of people, but I thought it was significant, and that is that Ohio Republican Representative Anthony Gonzalez announced that he was not going to seek another term in the House. And the ostensible reason for that was that he was going to be running essentially against Trump and against Trump candidates, and he had gotten some some unfortunate communications from Trump supporters, and he felt that he didn't want to put his family through that and suggested there, suggested that there may have been some kind of threats and, and all that. Who, who knows? But that's relevant because Anthony Gonzalez has been the golden boy on the congressional side, being the symbolic leader of the NCAA and Power Five's campaign in Congress to get these protections and immunities, and he's done it in a way that made it appear as if he was supportive of athletes' rights. He was the very first witness to testify in the very first hearing in the Senate Commerce Committee. So he comes from the House as a House member, and he's the first witness to testify in the Senate 
Commerce Committee, and then he is a co-author of this Level Playing Field Act, this bill that he co-sponsored with Emmanuel Cleaver, a Democrat from Missouri who's African-American. And I talked a lot about that in my episode 24, Current Events Chaos, and the bill was re-released. The NCAA was pumping it on its website, and everybody was saying, Gonzalez is the guy that's going to lead us to the promised land on, on the legislative side. And then when things started to fall apart with name, image, and likeness, I think Gonzalez exposed himself as nothing more than a shill for the NCAA and for Mark Emmert. And again, another really bad look. Gonzalez went from the NCAA golden boy to all of a sudden having a, a little bit of tarnish there. And then his influence started to wane, and he was behind that September 30th, 2021 hearing in the House, the only hearing among the seven that were held on uh, ostensibly on name, image, and likeness in the House of Representatives. The other six were in the Senate. And Gonzalez was instrumental, I think, in getting that hearing on the calendar. But he's gone now. And I don't think anything's going to happen in Congress until the, until the midterm elections. And I'm going to talk more about that when I get back to this Constitution Committee and what I think is going to be re-engagement by the Power Five in Congress once things settle down a little bit. But I don't think anything's going to happen in the next 10 to 12 months. And Gonzalez isn't going to be around to be you know, the pitch man for the NCAA in the next Congress. And I think that's consequential. It also speaks to how fickle the political winds can be, particularly on the House side when you have turnover every two years. These Senate terms are are six years and you have more stability. But the House, people are coming and going all the time. Mark Walker, the Republican from North Carolina, who in 2019 put out a bill that really was on its face supposed to be pro-athlete on name, image, and likeness and got a bunch of press. He didn't stick around. He didn't have the staying power to see that issue through. And you had, you had Donna Shalala in the House with a, a bill that I think made some sense, and she was going to do a holistic review of big-time college sports, and then she loses. <laughs> and then you have people like Gonzalez saying, well, I'm not going to run again. So I think it really puts a, a focus on how difficult it is to sustain momentum on any particular initiative if it's running through the House of Representatives. So, but that didn't quite make the cut. So that's my honorable mention list. And Okay, number 10 on my top 10 of 2021. And that is the resurrection of Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model. And that occurred on September 30th of 2021 through Baylor University President Linda Livingstone's testimony in the House Commerce and Consumer Protection Subcommittee. Livingstone went right to the heart of this absurd and exploitative conceptualization of the financial underpinnings of big-time college sports that former NCAA president Miles Brand invented during his tenure in the early 2000s and then really put the finishing touches on in his 2006 State of the Association speech. And I did an episode on this in the context of that September 30th hearing, and it is episode 69, and it's titled NCAA Confidential, Exploit the Hell Out of Black Revenue Producing Athletes in Paren, Miles Brand's Collegiate 
model. And in that episode, I went through Miles Brand's definition and articulation of the collegiate model as a business model and, and as a justification for the financial underpinnings of big-time college sports. And then I applied it to Linda Livingstone's testimony on September 30th. What Miles Brand said in 2006 was that the higher education component of the big-time college sports marketplace was unique and that big-time universities who are in the sweepstakes, the big-time college sports sweepstakes, had an absolute duty, a mandate to maximize revenue in two sports, football and men's basketball. The maximization of revenue was entirely appropriate in those two sports, so long as on the output side, that money was taken and then spent in ways that were consistent with the university's nonprofit mission. And the way that Brand conceptualized that output side, he was thinking about participation opportunities. So basically, you exploit the ever-living hell out of high-level football and high-level men's basketball, and then you take that money and you uh, spend it on scholarships for non-revenue-producing athletes and on administrative services and things that you could try to claim with a straight face or consistent with an educational purpose and therefore your non-profit mission. Lost in that, of course, is that in this massive redistribution of revenues, and that's how Brand characterized it. He said, this is a massive redistribution of revenues. But lost in this redistribution of wealth is that the laborers who produce that wealth in football and men's basketball are uh, disproportionately African-American and comparatively less well-off than the beneficiaries of these participation opportunities who are non-revenue athletes and in women's sports and the quote-unquote Olympic athletes who are overwhelmingly white and comparatively well-off. So you have this unconscionable business model that Brand just put on the table there really to try to I think reconcile this fundamental tension between the business of big time college sports and the academic mission and the integrity of higher education. But there's no question that formulation of the big time college sports business model is nothing more than a massive regressive transfer of wealth from black laborers to white beneficiaries. And it has not been called out on those terms. People talk about the exploitative model, and they also talk about the collegiate model, but nobody talks about Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model that demands that exploitation. It is the definition of exploitation. But we didn't really have people putting the collegiate model right there on the table and saying, this is the way we need to do business, and, and we need to make sure that we're taking this money from these revenue-producing athletes, and we're giving it to these downstream beneficiaries. Linda Livingstone said that explicitly at this September 30th hearing. And the reason that's so important is that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries, the NCAA, the Power Five University presidents, just like Linda Livingstone, they are justifying the race-based exploitation of football and men's basketball players under this formulation of the collegiate model. And they are doubling down on the collegiate model rather than looking at it honestly and saying, 
we simply are going to condemn it. And we can't have an intelligent discussion about the business of big-time college sports until we talk honestly about what the collegiate model really means in practice as a business model. They're not saying that. So she's putting it out there like it's just the way that things work and the way things should work. And the way that she articulated the collegiate model at that hearing, she made the beneficiaries of black athlete labor out to be the victims. That is what the NCAA and the Power Five and their spokespeople are trying to pull off in the United States Congress. So that's number 10. All right, number nine on the top 10 of 2021, and that is the August 11th decision by the Committee on Infractions in the Baylor case. And this case ran through the old Committee on Infractions. It wasn't part of this new independent accountability resolution process. And it relates to Baylor University's failure to report a series of violent acts against women by Baylor football players. And this conduct goes back really, I think, to 2010. So we're reaching back into the archives here. But the Committee on Infractions found that there were not any NCAA rules violations, despite the fact that Baylor acknowledged in internal investigations that there was a colossal operational failure. There was universal condemnation of Baylor's conduct by numerous outside investigatory bodies. And uh, I did an episode on that Baylor decision. Let's see, that was episode 52. It's titled, what the Baylor decision says about the NCAA. In it, I analyzed how the Committee on Infractions went about trying to make its case against Baylor University. The tension between these constitutional provisions that on their face relate to gender equity and gender bias and things that logically correlate to what happened at Baylor. But the NCAA and the NCAA Committee on Infractions couldn't rely on those fluffy constitutional provi uh, provisions because there was nothing in actual NCAA legislation that gave the NCAA the authority to enforce any of those constitutional principles. And what is so important about that case is that it just showed the NCAA's infractions and enforcement procedures and their entire regulatory authority to be nothing more than a house of cards. There is quite literally no there there on issues like this or on issues relating to academic integrity. Like in the UNC case, the NCAA has all these fluffy constitutional principles that go to academic standards, but there's very little in NCAA legislation, actual legislation that would allow the NCAA to enforce those standards. And in the North Carolina case, they didn't. They decided not to go forward with the case. They didn't go to the committee on infractions. And in the other sexual misconduct cases, the Penn State case, the NCAA didn't even go through the infractions and enforcement process there. Mark Emmert unilaterally decided 
that he had such a strong hand to play because Penn State was so embarrassed at what had happened, that he was just going to issue an imperial edict and force Penn State to agree to a draconian consent order. So the infractions and enforcement staff didn't have to wrestle with the question of how they would fit that serious misconduct into the existing NCAA enforcement and infractions process. And they couldn't have. And then you had the same thing with Larry Nasser at Michigan State. And that case didn't even make it out of the infraction and enforcement staff, the in-house national office staff. It never, again, made it to the actual Committee on Infractions. So this Baylor case was really important because it was the first time that the NCAA was forced to say out loud and to put into writing to try to justify why it didn't have jurisdiction to handle the allegations that, that came out of the Baylor case. It was cringeworthy to read because what they tried to do was to pound that misconduct into a bylaw that has absolutely nothing to do with sexual misconduct or attentiveness to gender equity issues or providing a safe environment for athletes and the community. Because there is no legislation that protects any of those things. Instead, they tried to use a bylaw titled Awards, Benefits, and Expenses for Enrolled Student Athletes that relates to things like impermissible Mickey Mouse benefits, like free meals or rides with coaches or free tickets or lodging and housing. And they actually tried to make the argument in that decision, that Baylor decision, that the preferential treatment that athletes got by not having to be punished for sexual misconduct was an extra benefit not unlike a free ticket to a basketball game. And that exposed the absurdity of the entire NCAA regulatory structure. And it's that very structure which has been under criticism for decades and is now being made over through this Constitution Committee. But the reason that this was such a consequential event is that the NCAA was forced for the first time to say out loud and to try to analyze why it had no jurisdiction. And the reason is that it doesn't give a damn about those fluffy principles. It doesn't give a damn about athlete well-being. It cares about two things and two things only, and that is regulating the fixed price for the cost of labor and capping it at the value of an athletic scholarship, and two, rules that regulate the talent acquisition market, the recruiting market. And those are the only two categories of rules that the NCAA has actual legislation that would support an enforcement action. That's it. And this Baylor case exposed that all these principles contained in the NCAA Constitution are nothing more than window dressing. And all they do is use them to propagandize their business model. But when there are violations of those standards, the NCAA doesn't do a damn thing because they have chosen not to make those principles enforceable. All right, on to number eight of the top 10 of 2021. And that relates to two announcements that came out of the April 2021 Board of Governors meeting. Again, 
This may not have seemed that significant on its face, but I believe it was really important because of the way that the NCAA National Office had operated under Mark Emmert's leadership and under the influence of Donald Remy, its chief legal officer, who I believe was largely responsible for the NCAA's inside the Beltway strategy through its inside the Beltway lawyers, through Wilmer Hale and Wilkinson Stetkloff, and then through its lobbying campaign, and that was Brownstein, Hyatt, and all of its inside the Beltway propagandists in the media. All that ran through Donald Remy, and that was really the epicenter of the NCAA's Iron Throne campaign in the Senate to get all these extraordinary protections and immunities, and also their strategy in this Austin case to get judicially created antitrust immunity. But at that April Board of Governors meeting, two things happened. One, the board announced the departure of Remy. Remy left the NCAA, and he joined the Biden administration in the Department of Veterans Affairs. And at that same meeting, another thing happened that really caught a lot of people off guard, and that is that the Board of Governors extended Mark Emmert's contract as president of the NCAA to 20 25. And neither of those events got the coverage that I think they deserved, but Emmert's contract extension did get some criticism in the media. And there were some people speaking on the condition of anonymity saying, whiskey, tango, foxtrot. This guy has no business staying in that office, basically. But with Remy leaving, and Remy and Emmert have been sidekicks, a very powerful duo behind the scenes there. And I think they were basically controlling the direction of the Board of Governors and through the input from all these external regulators with whom they had the sole relationship. Because under the NCAA Constitution at the time, Mark Emmert as NCAA president is solely responsible for hiring, employing non-administrative personnel, which means all the third-party contractors like the lawyers, like the lobbyists, like the public relations people. They were loyal to Mark Emmert and to Donald Remy because those were the people who hired them. I believe they were using that inside information and their inside relationships with those really important decision makers to direct and influence what happened with the Board of Governors. And when Remy left, I think people were rightfully concerned that the chief strategist was gone here. And then you've got Mark Emmert, and who the hell knows how, how Emmert really understands these issues, the way he's answered questions in Congress leads me to believe that he has a very superficial understanding of these issues. But Emmert wanted to make sure that he got his contract extended while he's losing his power base. And what you, when you look at what happened after that April meeting with Emmert with this inexplicable contract extension, and it was a unanimous vote. And I went back and looked at the roster of the Board of Governors, and I think every member of the Board of Governors, all 21, were present at that meeting. It just made no sense at all. It didn't make sense to a lot of other people who had been paying close attention as well. But what happened after that meeting with Remy's absence, I think, shows just how ill-equipped Emmert was to lead. And I think his fear of being in that position is what led him to what I believe was a manipulation into that contract extension. So you had, with this new Constitution Committee, all these concerns about agendas being presented by ambush to the Board of Governors and 
some of these decisions about legal issues and legal strategies being made without consulting all the uh, divisional interests and the uh, governing body interests. I think all those point to what what I have characterized here in this April 2021 board meeting and Emmert's attempt to try to hold on to his power. But you had the Austin decision in June. You had uh, Emmert's failed attempt in the Senate to get last-ditch preemption as the state nil laws were going into effect in July. And then the nil dump on June 30th, seven hours and 40 minutes before these state laws went into effect. I mean, the wheels really started to come off after that April meeting. And Emmert was left to his own devices to try to navigate some of the consequential events that were raining down on him. And it was just a cluster muck, an absolute cluster muck. And in typical Emmert style, he has yet to acknowledge responsibility for any of the things that happened in 2021. It's just, you know, it's not Mark Emmert's fault. It's never Mark Emmert's fault, which is part of the problem and part of the reason why the NCAA is in desperate need of new leadership. But the net result of that meeting, at a time when Emmert's leadership should have been on the table. The NCAA doubled down on Emmert's mismanagement, his arrogance, and his lack of understanding of what was happening around him. And I think there were real consequences to the NCAA as things played out and the wheels came off in the, into the summer and fall of 2021, because I think it's going to be harder now for the Power Five to go back to Congress with credibility and try to pick up where the NCAA and Mark Emmert left off. That's a tall order, which is one of the reasons, as I'm going to discuss when I get back to discussing this Constitution Committee and talking a little bit more about what I think is going to happen in 2022, that the midterm elections are going to be very, very important. And I think that the Power Five is looking at the calendar now, and that's going to be an, an interesting transition for them into the driver's seat in Congress and whether they're going to be able to repair the damage that was done by Emmert and Remy. And just to put an exclamation point on how ridiculous the decision was to extend Emmert's contract. At that June 9th hearing, uh, Tennessee Republican Marsha Blackburn, who is no fan of the NCAA, no fan of Mark Emmert, came out and really this was out of a sense of frustration, if not exasperation. And she just said, you're, you're not getting the job done here and your leadership has been called into question. Isn't it time for you to go? She just came out and said it. And Emmert's response, well, no, it's, uh, it's for the Board of uh, Governors. It, it was just painful to listen to Emmert try to explain why he has any business sitting at a chair behind a microphone in the United States Senate. And Blackburn just cut right to the chase there. And what she said, I believe, is what a lot of people people have felt. And you have to remember that Marsha Blackburn should be a slam dunk in the NCAA column on federal legislation. She is a Republican. She is from the state of Tennessee in SEC land. And she is right out of the same cloth as all the other Republican senators that have carried water for the NCAA. And in this Senate campaign, it became clear very quickly that this was really a partisan issue. If you're a Republican, you're for the NCAA. If you're a Democrat, you're for 
athletes' rights, and there really hasn't been a lot of movement on that issue, despite Maria Cantwell's attempt to try to make this a bipartisan issue. But if you're losing Marsha Blackburn and you're the president of the NCAA, you got a big, big problem. And that alone should have alerted people in the NCAA governance process Emmert's involvement in Congress was bad news. And some of the people in the Power Five recognized that. And I've talked about this December 2019 meeting where the Power Five got together and raised some important questions about whether Emmert was the guy to lead their campaign in the Senate. And they chose to allow Emmert and Remy and the NCAA to take the lead on it. And I think that ultimately was a huge, huge mistake. And unfortunately, the Board of Governors, for whatever reason, didn't have the backbone to look at that employment relationship honestly and ask the same questions that Marsha Blackburn asked in a public hearing in June of 2021. All right, three down and two more to go. We are down to number seven on the top 10 of 2021, and that is the NCAA's immediate cessation of voluntary name, image, and likeness rulemaking as of January 6th, the day after the Georgia special elections, which meant the day after the Republicans lost control of the United States Senate. And that really covers a time frame of January 5th to January 11th. And some very interesting things happened there. And for context, uh, I just want to point out a couple things. First of all, the NCAA, in connection with its claimed initiative to voluntarily change its rules to allow name, image, and likeness, quote-unquote, compensation, they set a timetable for January of 2021. So they had this working group that was formed in, I think it was May of 2019, and then they do all this work and they put out all this propaganda. They do their final report in April of 2020. And all along, they said that by January of 2021, each division was going to have in place new rules on name, image, and likeness that would permit uh, name, image, and likeness, quote unquote, compensation. So everybody's looking to January of 2021. And this was supposed to be done by each division. This was a divisional initiative, according to the NCAA, its working group, the Board of Governors, and Mark Emmert. And at Division One, that was really the most consequential because that's where most of the nil activity was going to occur. I think most people agree on that. And the Division I Council had legislation in place really for eight months prior to January of 2021. But the NCAA wasn't permitting that legislation to see the light of day. They were holding off. And it's my belief that the NCAA had no intention of initiating any voluntary rules changes unless they got absolute federal protections and immunities from Congress. In fact, their working group said as much. So this whole voluntary rules changes initiative was kabuki theater. And what happened in January, the first week of January of 2021, proved my theory. And it's also important to remember that I don't think there were many people predicting that the Republicans were going to lose the Senate. So you had this fundamental change in the political landscape and these federal protections and immunities, which looked reasonably attainable in a Republican-controlled Senate, all of a sudden they went on life support. 
you know, after these Georgia special elections and these important chairmanships in commerce, judiciary, health, education, labor, and pensions, they were going from Republican senators who had been all on board with the NCAA to unknown Democrat chairs. And that single event just turned the NCAA strategy in Congress upside down. And it went into panic mode. It didn't know what to do. So out of the blue, between January 6th and January 9th, a story develops that the NCAA is going to be terminating its uh, voluntary rulemaking on name, image, and likeness, and that it is all because of some pressure that the Justice Department Antitrust Division was suddenly applying to the NCAA, and they had concerns about the NCAA's name, image, and likeness proposal, the voluntary rulemaking that it intended to put into divisional legislation. And these articles started appearing in uh, national publications. It started with USA Today, then there was something in the New York Times. And I talk about the, these articles in some detail in, in a blog post that I wrote, and I'll uh, link to that blog post. But the articles made no sense at all. And apparently there were all these communications behind the scenes between a gentleman named Makan Del Harim, who was head of the antitrust division under Trump, and Mark Emmert. And they presented it in the media as this kind of conflict-oriented exchange where Del Harim was saying, we have all kinds of concerns here about the antitrust implications of this proposal that you're offering. And we're concerned about this through a lens of racial justice. And, and then in the article, there's quoting from Emmert and from Del Harim in this exchange. It occurs over the weekend, no less, over the weekend. And this is just a couple of weeks before Del Harim's leaving. We're going to have a change in the administration. None of this added up. None of it made any sense. And we never saw the actual communications, only characterizations from NCAA-friendly media interests. And these articles just didn't address some obvious inconsistencies in what was coming out from Del Harim and Emmert. And there was a complete lack of curiosity as to who this Del Harim guy was. And why, if there had been these long-standing concerns, we're hearing about it for the first time on January 8th of 2021, three days after the NCAA loses its advantage in Congress. And all of a sudden, everybody just accepts and repeats. It, this thing gets circulated and repeated. Oh, well, the NCAA had to pull out of its voluntary rulemaking because of pressure from the Justice Department and the antitrust division, and they expressed concerns about the antitrust implications of the NCAA's proposed new rules. But we never got an intelligent explanation as to what precisely the antitrust concerns were. There should have been a paper trail identifying all these antitrust issues, because according to these articles, these concerns had been on the table for months, if not years. And where was that story? The Justice Department has concerns about the NCAA's proposals on name, image, and likeness, and that doesn't make the media. And so what happened was very clear. The NCAA lost its advantage in Congress. It pulled out of Congress. And you also have to remember that it was just a month earlier that the United States Supreme Court decides that it's going to hear the Austin appeal. So in early January of 2021, the NCAA knows that Austin's going to be reviewed by the United States Supreme Court. And I think they believe, just as I did, that the way the issues were framed on appeal 
it only made sense that the Supreme Court would take the case if it was inclined to grant the NCAA absolute antitrust immunity. So I think they just said, look, we have this thing in play now that could be very favorable to us. We lost our advantage in the Senate. We need a reason to press pause on voluntary rulemaking. So you sit back and you see what's going to happen in Austin. That's exactly what actually happened. But what that entire episode exposes and why it's so important, in my view, is that it shows the extent of the power of the NCAA, not just as a governing body in college sports, but at the political level and how it is insinuated into the corridors of power. If you have the NCAA getting assistance from the most powerful institutions in the country and in the world to do its bidding. And that's what you get when you hire Brownstein Hyatt. That's when you get when you have people who worked in the federal government also uh, doing your bidding in the national office. It's what you get when you have built decades of inroads for favorable treatment through mainstream media outlets. It's through these kind of corrupted relationships that the NCAA gets its way. And I'll just note that even though there was some backlash from some in-system stakeholders, there were some athletes who were concerned about the, what happened there and the cessation of voluntary rulemaking. There were some, I think, some suggestions from people on the Division I Council that they weren't crazy about this. But as it played out, nobody is talking now about the absence of voluntary rulemaking on name, image, and likeness. It has simply become an issue that's disappeared. And it all goes back to this fantasy that the Justice Department basically told the NCAA to stand down on voluntary rulemaking. All right. Now we are down to number six on the top 10 of 2021. And number six is really two things that happened at or about the same time. And those were two hearings in the Senate, one on June 9th and then one on June 17th. And both of these hearings were important because the first hearing, June 9th, was the NCAA's last-ditch attempt to try to get federal preemption of state name, image, and likeness laws. They had been talking about this going back to the February 2020 hearings, and it had been part of their congressional campaign, really going back to the work of the uh, Federal State Legislation Working Group, this NCAA working group that was looking at name, image, and likeness. Things really were in flux because of the special elections and the change in Congress, but the NCAA thought that it had built enough momentum through its Republican-friendly senators on commerce, namely Jerry Moran and Roger Wicker, with Maria Cantwell, the new Democratic chair. Maria Cantwell, a Democrat from Washington, became the chair of the Commerce Committee, and she was all about bipartisanship. And I believe that the NCAA thought they had a chance of winning at least on preemption because they built up all this momentum about having a single uniform standard, and we don't want a hodgepodge, and we don't want a patchwork, and we want uniformity and all the propaganda that they had been pumping from the very beginning to disguise the true purpose of what they were doing, and that is to completely take states off the table as a potential external regulator in college sports and a threat to the NCAA's compensation limits, amateurism-based compensation limits. But they thought they had a good chance. And so at this June 9th hearing, they brought in a panel of people 
who were going to support preemption. That, that's the long and short of this hearing. And, and there were six witnesses, and five of them were NCAA down the line. There was only one witness who said that he was not in favor of preemption, and he got shouted down by Roger Wicker, of all people, at that hearing. So, well, you're only one of six people who disagrees with this. What's your problem? But this was a hearing that was essentially run by the NCAA's Republican senators that was loaded with yes people on preemption. And I did an episode on that on, let's see, June 14th of 2021, titled Preemption Fever. And I discuss that hearing in detail. And I did a, about a really long intro, a seven-minute intro that had clips from that hearing showing some of the the themes uh, of that hearing. But the bottom line there is that the NCAA really believed that it was going to come away with some type of preemption protection that would have stalled all these state laws that were set to go into effect on July 1st. And after that hearing, I thought there was some chance that there was going to be some quick bill that might come through commerce that would have bipartisan support. But then on June 17th, a week later, after there was pressure at this June 9th hearing, one of the things that came up, and this really came up through Richard Blumenthal, the senator from Connecticut, he's a Democrat and he's on board with the Athletes' Bill of Rights. He just said, look, we at least need to hear from the athletes. We need to get an athlete hearing scheduled. So that was on the table, and there was an obvious absence of input from athletes throughout these hearings. And I've talked about that at length as well. Not a single revenue-producing athlete was ever called to testify, or a single athlete who disagreed with the NCAA Power Five narratives. So on June 17th, there's this hearing that had just been announced a couple days before, where athletes were going to have the opportunity to speak to their experience as athletes. and. First, I was concerned that this was going to be a whitewash by the NCAA interests and that Wicker and Moran had talked to Cantwell into having hearings that were actually going to be NCAA-friendly hearings and we were going to have NCAA-friendly athletes. But as it turned out, these witnesses were selected by the Democrats on that committee and all the athletes were African-American and then there was the father, an African-American as well, the father of a, a player who was a football player at the University of Maryland who died during an abusive workout from heat stroke. And the testimony was just heart-wrenching. And then the testimony from two of the three African-American female athletes was really powerful and that was the hearing that Roger Wicker essentially boycotted. But on the backside of that hearing, I doubt that there were many Democrat members of that committee who were inclined to go with some quick preemption provision. Preemption is a very important power. At the June 9th hearing, Brian Schatz, a Democrat from Hawaii, really for the first time pierced some important holes in the NCAA's campaign to get these federal protections and immunities. And this was supposed to be about name, image, and likeness. And he just called the NCAA out and said, look, explain to me 
how the, this provision on athletes can't be employees or these antitrust immunities, how they relate to name, image, and likeness. And Emmert bobbed and weaved, but one of the law professors in response to that question said they have nothing to do with name, image, and likeness. And that's a problem. And it's a massive ask. What they're asking for here by saying that athletes can't be employees is not some little clarification. The NCAA tried to portray it as a clarification of the relationship between athletes and institutional interests. That wasn't a clarification. That was a massive, massive power play. And Schott saw that and he got this uh, professor to admit that. And that professor, I think, was largely NCAA friendly because he was in favor of preemption. But the NCAA got called out in, on some of these important issues for the first time through all of these hearings. And then on the backside of this June 17th hearing, I think the preemption issue was dead, which meant that as of June 17th, the NCAA had 13 days to come up with some kind of a strategy before July 1st and these uh, state nil laws going into effect. And that really, I think, started to ratchet up the pressure. And this was before the decision in Austin. So Austin comes out on June 21st of 2021, four days after this June 17th hearing. But I think the template was set in the Senate before the Austin decision. And then the Austin decision only made it worse. And then Emmert comes in with his nil dump on June 30th. And it was just an absolute train wreck. But those June hearings were important independent of Austin because the NCAA failed in its attempt to nullify these state name, image, and likeness laws. All right. So that's the first half of my top 10 of 2021. And to recap, number 10, the resurrection of the collegiate model. And that was at that September 30th hearing in the House. Number nine, the infractions and enforcement decision relating to Baylor University that came out on August 11th. Number eight, the April Board of Governors meeting where they announced that Don Remy is leaving and Mark Emmert is staying for way longer than he should have. He got a contract extension to 2025. The number seven are these events swirling around the January 5th special elections in Georgia, where the uh, Republicans lost control of the Senate, and then the NCAA pulls out of Congress and ceases voluntary rules making on name, image, and likeness. And then number Six, the June hearings where the NCAA lost their last-ditch attempt to nullify state name, image, and likeness laws. So there you have it. We'll pick up with number five in the next episode. So I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. <laughs>